0: We have um, been in the the gospel of john and um, and so i 'm looking forward to uh, continuing that with you this morning. Um, I was reading this week uh, about england 's war with France uh, that culminated in the Battle of waterloo uh, i don 't know if any of you are history buffs i 'm not a uh, a big uh, history reader, but I love stories with um, uh, kind of unexpected endings. And, um, and so uh, during the, the war with Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, the people of London were anxiously waiting for news of, of the battle that was going on in Europe. And on one occasion, a British admiral uh, attempted to convey news uh, of a victory by uh, the Duke of Wellington uh, during his peninsula campaign, and he was using a semaphore system, which is uh, they would use long poles and uh, like a scaffolding, and they would position them in different ways to to, to communicate letters, and sometimes they would use lights and different things, and so, um, as they were transmitting this message from a distance across the water um, they they saw the first word wellington and uh, and then the next word followed defeated and then a fog rolled in and and that was. All the message that they had, and so uh, it was just hours uh, later that all of London had heard Wellington defeated and and there was uh, this this sense of of uh, brokenness and fear and anxiety and despair as as people began to to hear this message. but then several hours later, the fog cleared, and they could see the scaffolding and they could see the rest of the message, and the rest of the message said the enemy. Wellington defeated the enemy. And imagine the relief and the celebration that went through all of London as people began to understand. Um, they, they had thought that they were getting super bad news, but what they were really getting was great news, and it changed everything. And as quick as that despair took over London, the celebrations took over with this new message. It, as I read it, I couldn't help but remember when Tanya and I um, uh, were, were first starting to, to talk about dating. Um, I had sat down with her and I said, look, I, I want to date you, um, but uh, I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, at 25 years old, um, uh, if if you don't see this going someplace, if you don't see this heading towards marriage, like I know you're only in your second year of college, but if if this isn't heading that direction and you just want to be friends, I got enough friends. Um, and so uh uh, with that kind of tact, it's no wonder that um, it took her like a whole week to come back to talk to me. Um, and when she talked to, uh, began to talk to me, there was no smile on her face. And um, and she looked like she was really concentrating on what she was going to say. And she was t- telling everything in a past tense. You know, you have been a really good friend and we have had a lot of really good times and I have enjoyed getting to know you. And my heart dropped in my stomach and I thought, this is it. This is where she says it's over. I, I don't want the same things you want. You want to head towards marriage. I don't want that. Um, and, and it was like, my heart broke. I knew where the words were coming. The shoe was going to drop and she was going to say, but, and as soon as she said, but then everything was over. And I, I could feel my face turning red and I could, and all I could think was like, I am not going to respond emotionally in front of her. I'm going to get away from here as quick as I can. And so then I was super surprised when she said, "So I want to take the next step." And I was like, "I don't, I don't know what that means." I could my my brain could not f- process that because I had already gone to she's breaking up with me. And instead, she I, I said, what, "What do you mean the next step?" She goes well, of course, I, I, I want to start dating. And, and I was like, dating me? <laughs> um, and uh, the, all of a sudden it was like, um, those of you who grew up with the wide world of sports, I don't know if you ever remember Jim McKay talking about um, the agony of defeat. And you see the skier and he's falling down the hill and he's like, skis are going everywhere and, and then you see a motorcycle crash and he talks about the thrill of victory and people are cheering and a guy takes a, a dumbbell and throws Up over his head. And it like I felt like I had just done that. I had gone from the agony of defeat to the thrill of victory. And suddenly the sun was out and it had just been dark a minute ago. And and I think that like when when we think about this story of of these people in London that they got the the good news after getting the really bad news about, you know, the way that that I experienced that. I think probably we've we've all had that at some point, right? We we walk into H and R block thinking I'm gonna owe a whole bunch of money, and then I'll I'm getting a refund, right? Um, we see the lights in our rearview mirror and we think, oh man, I know I'm speeding. And we pull over. But the cop goes flying past us and gets the guy in front of us. Um, the, the, there's the, those times when, when we are in the office and somebody says, the boss wants to see you. And you think, oh, man, I have seen the reductions in force. This can't be good. And you walk in and he says, hey, we've had a lot of turmoil. Um, and that's why we need you to step up into leadership and we're going to promote you. The, when, when the agony of defeat suddenly becomes the thrill of victory, we, we find ourselves it's so much better because it was so unexpected. We, we just can't imagine that. Well, we're going to be in John chapter 20 today. And in John chapter 20, it tells one of those stories. It tells one of those stories of people who are completely despondent and they are grieving because their friend has been murdered. And, and they are literally hiding in fear because they think that the people who killed their friend are going to come kill them. And they are feeling many of the same things those Londoners felt as they heard the words wellington 's defeated right um, we 've been in the Gospel, of John, and John gives us nine signs, um, and these signs are are things that Jesus did where he does something absolutely impossible, and then he takes it to the next level he doesn 't just turn water into wine, but he turns water into wine that 's even better than what they started with it's, he, he doesn 't just heal a boy but he heals a boy from a distance he doesn 't just raise a dead man but he raises a dead man who 's been de- in the grave for four days it 's Two days later then the the religious leaders would tell you that that the soul would stay in the body. And so in each of these instances, he does something absolutely unbelievable. And then he takes it to the next level. In each of these instances, he shows us his deity, and then he asks us to believe. John chapter 20, where we're going to be today, it it says that Jesus did many incredible signs, but these, the ones here in John, and John structured the whole book around these signs. These were written that you might believe in the name of the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life. So John chapter 20 records a sign that all the other signs have been leading up to. John chapter 20 is it, it's the definitive sign. In fact, it is the definitive thing that shapes all of Christianity. When, when you look at, at um, what Paul said about Christianity, he talks about this sign. And he says, for I deliver to you of first importance. It's the primary thing that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And he was buried And that's where the disciples are right now. Jesus has been been buried, and they are in fear, and they are in hiding, and they are in despair. It says, but he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Paul understood that this sign this is the, the primary thing that all of Christianity is built around. All of Christianity is, is built around this thing. And if this is not true, then Jesus is completely fraudulent. There's nothing about him that we should follow. I I have friends that say, hey, I I, I believe that that Jesus was a good moral teacher, but I don't believe that he was the son of God. And and C.S. Lewis, when he uh, addresses this, he he says something that I think is worth repeating. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. If if you don't accept... Uh, I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said. He would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic, on level with someone who says that they're a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else this man was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon, and you, you, or you can call, fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left open that possibility he did not intend to. So in short, the the resurrection is the difference between Jesus being a liar or a lunatic or actually being our Lord. And so when we come to John chapter 20, it tells the story of the resurrection. And remember, John has a very specific purpose. He he wants us to believe in the name of the Son of God and by believing have life. And so he begins um, in in a way that is is kind of surprising to us because uh, he he begins with Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was a, a woman who Apparently, it had seven demons. The gospel tells us, and so here is um, a woman at the tomb who who you would think, man, that's not somebody that I want to put my trust in. Uh, that's not somebody who I want to believe. And beyond that, in in these times, women were not allowed to testify in court. So the idea that Jesus it starts telling his story of of the resurrection and it begins with a woman who had demons is really it's it's. It's not how somebody would fake this story. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been not just rolled away. She saw the stone had been violently removed from the tomb. That's that's the way the, the Greek wording is. And so she ran. And she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, and she makes a a wrong assumption. She just jumps to the assumption. And she went to Simon Peter and the one Jesus loved, that's John, who's writing this, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb, and both of them were running. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and he stooped in to look. And he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. We often talk about the empty tomb, but sometimes we don 't think about the fact that the tomb wasn 't completely empty. There was evidence that Jesus had been there, but there was evidence that he wasn 't there anymore and the the linens the, the expensive linens that are that are covered in this um, uh, these fine spices and oils is is lying there and he didn't go in. And we don't know why. We don't know if he was afraid of, of of defiling himself because then he would be unclean if he went into the tomb. We don't, we don't know what, what his, his reason is. We just know that he stopped short and he was looking, but he wouldn't go in. And then Simon Peter came and followed him and he went into the tomb and he saw the linen clothes lying there, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and saw and believed. And, and you, you are, are kind of following this and you're going, these guys, one goes in and, and, and sees, but he doesn't know what to make of it. The other one sees and, and begins to piece things together and, and comes to belief. And for as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept and looked into the tomb. And so as we begin in John chapter 20, we understand that the Jesus' resurrection is going to um, put in front of people who are at best, skeptical, Um, at worst, completely cynical. Um, He's going to put in front of them the truth that he has risen, and they're going to have to respond to that. And so Jesus rose, in part, to convince cynics, to convince skeptics. And so Mary is there, and she's outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood to look inside the tomb. And when she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet, and they said, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said... They've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And you go, that's interesting. She didn't recognize him. But you know what? That's in keeping with the, what the Bible says about Jesus. It says that, that they, when they scourged Jesus, they beat him beyond recognition. So here's a man she does not recognize. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell him where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She, she in hearing her name on his lips, she understood who he was. And she responded, teacher, she, she immediately understood. And Jesus said, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. This is sometimes a misunderstood phrase. When, when you read that, it's like, is there some weird thing about the ascension that's going to make Jesus different? Um, it's not like that. It's as it's, it's simple as this. Um, uh, when, when Tanya and the boys were living in Michigan, and I was flying in every three weeks to see them, um, uh, on Sundays, we would take the kids to church. And Carl was very small, and uh, he knew kind of our pattern. And as soon as he saw the church building, he would start to cry, No, daddy airplane, because he knew that as soon as we left church, we were going to drive straight to the airport and I was going to get on an airplane. Jesus is saying, don't cling to me. I'm not going anywhere yet. I will ascend to the Father, but don't try to hold on to me like I'm going someplace. And I think to some degree, he's beginning to redefine what it is that the the relationship with his disciples is going to be. He doesn't want them to get latched on to his physical presence because he's going to do something better, and he's going to send the Spirit. So it says, um, uh, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Then Mary Magdalene went, and she announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had seen the... Said these things to her. So, so here we have um, Jesus, who is is rising from the dead to convince cynics, and the cynics are his disciples. It is a, a woman who misunderstands and thinks his body has been stolen. It is two of his disciples, one who who looks in thinking I, I don't know what's going on here, and, and the other who just stands there in wonder and and, and confusion, trying to th- wonder what it was that happened. And and I think. For John, he pieced together what what Jesus had said earlier in the Gospel of John, right? In John chapter 2, he says, What miraculous sign can I show uh, that I have authority to do this? And he said, If you destroy this temple, my body, um, I will raise it up again after three days. And he said, I lay down my life and and I take it up again. Not only do I, uh, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Um, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This command I've received from the Father. And so John is piecing things together and he he is coming to belief and and he is understanding that when the the stone is violently ripped away, it is not um, some half dead guy who 's been somehow um, uh, like he feels better now because he's been lying on a cold stone slab for three days. The, the, the tomb is empty. And, and people understood at that time, um, th- there was no uh, sense of, hey, maybe this is a lie. Maybe Jesus is still in the tomb. Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who had given the tomb to, uh, to Jesus, was a prominent man. and People in in Greek and Roman and, and Jewish uh, communities knew him. They knew his properties. And they knew that they could discredit any kind claims of Jesus that they went to the tomb and the tomb actually still had his body in it. And, and the, the so the, the cynics of the day, they, they didn't disagree about um, the, whether the tomb was empty. They just came up with a different reason for why the tomb was empty. In Matthew chapter 28, when when the soldiers go and they're telling the, the uh, officials, hey, uh, like the body is gone, they said, hey, what we want you to do is say that the disciples came while you were asleep and they stole the body away. I, I think... That, that passage is something that that we probably, like we gloss over and we, but I think when we look at that, they're putting forward kind of a credible idea that, well, maybe the disciples stole the body. And I think if we're going to be honest about uh, how we approach the resurrection, we have to ask ourselves hard questions. and And we have faith to believe, but our faith is not, just based on, on things that are completely irrational. We have a reasonable faith. And so we have to ask, Did the body, was the body of Jesus stolen by the disciples? I, I think one of the things that we can look at is we read 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, and it says that there were more than 500 witnesses, right? And so more than 500 witnesses, and of those, no one ever recanted and said, eh, it was all a lie, I don't know why we did that. Um, uh, none of these people had any gain by trying to prop up a failed messiah and and they were going to be persecuted and many of them were going to die including family members of Jesus if 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 i lived and began to tell people Uh, Hey, everybody, I'm perfect. I've never done anything sinful. I am am without sin and I'm the son of God. Um, I have three brothers who grew up with me, and my three brothers would never let that stand. They'd be like, Are you kidding me? Let me give you 50 stories about how Tim messed up. I have four children. My four children would not let that stand, right? But my wife, who I've been married to, two decades, is, is going to go, ah, I love him, but no, right? Um, Jesus had two brothers willing to die for him. James, who became a pastor, he affirms his deity. He, he is called out in 1 Corinthians 15 as one of the ones that Jesus appeared to. And he became a, a pastor and ultimately was stoned to death. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she worships him as God in Acts chapter 1. And then Jude, his brother, um, writes one of the books in the New Testament and affirms his deity. And so we have to look and go, all right, people had no reason to come up with this idea and they were willing to lay down their life. I don't think that they, they would lay down their life for a lie. But We could say, well, did, what about the, the Jewish officials or the Roman officials? Could they have taken the body? And and you go, all right, but a couple of chapters later in Acts, it looks like they're trying to squelch this uprising of people who believe in the resurrection. And if all they had to do was to trot out a body and go, "Look, here it is. We 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 had it all along." They would have done that. You go, okay. What about grave robbers? Could grave robbers? Yeah, but they would have taken the valuable stuff, not the body. They left behind all of the linens and they left behind all of the spices and all the oils. And and so you go, all right. Well, that's that's not right. About. 150 years ago, people began to talk about this theory. Well, maybe Jesus swooned at the cross. Um, And it's amazing that for 1,800 years, nobody came up with that idea because they understood that Jesus must have died. He was exhausted from a sleepless night, and he had been going from trial to trial to trial to trial, and then he was scourged beyond recognition, and then he was crucified by a professional executioner who declared him dead, and to give evidence of his death, he took a spear and drove it through his side and pierced the sacrament in the heart so that blood and water came out. And so then they took his body and they wrapped him up in a hundred pounds of linen and spices and oils, which would have asphyxiated any healthy man. And they left him for three days without food and water on a cold stone slab in a cave. And, and none of Jesus' contemporaries ever floated out the idea that he didn't die because they all understood that he must have. Right? It wasn't until 18 centuries later that somebody comes up with this idea. But it's why, after a lifetime of of scholarly study, N.T. Wright said the only possible uh, reason that early Christianity began and took the shape that it did is it's um, uh, because the tomb really was empty and people really did meet Jesus alive. It's why the the English jurist, um, Sir Edward Clark, he wrote, as a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of the evidence uh, for the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over in the high court, I have secured verdicts on evidence not nearly so compelling. As we look at the Evidence of Jesus' resurrection, um, we have to kind of think through epistemology, right? Epistemology is what do we know and how do we know it? How can we know anything that's true at all, right? And, and we know uh, we know things through empirical investigation. Empirical investigation gives us physical evidence. That's what a lot of police do, right? Um, rational deduction. We look at the evidence and then we go, where does this, what does this lead us to believe? Eyewitness testimony, which the scripture's full of, right? And the eyewitness testimony or, or the record of the is how we actually come to believe even things like our country's history, right? I've never seen a photograph or a video of George Washington on YouTube. And yet I believe that he was the first president of of our country. Why? yeah sure there's some paintings and what but i don't discard all those things and say yeah i don't believe that because the historical evidence the eyewitness testimony that that he is who he was even him kneeling in the snow in valley forge and crossing on a boat and going all of those things we know and we believe because we have eyewitness testimony at the time and it's recorded and then there is Personal experience. And personal experience, um, often people write off and they, they say, well, that might lead you to some sort of internal truth. Um, but it's least objective. But yet, it may be the least objective, but it is certainly the most compelling. Um, if, if you uh, try to convince me with an argument against something that I have experienced, I'm, I'm not going to choose your argument over my experience. My experience, even if I can't objectively put it in front of you and say, look, I, I think you should believe it too, based on my experience, even though that, that's not objective, it's compelling. And so when we look at John chapter 20, we have to look at all of these things and we have to, to look at the evidence and then think about what kind of rational deductions can we make and what were the eyewitnesses saying. And then the most important thing is, is, is there a possibility for us to experience the living Christ? And, and if we can, then it leads us to understand some of the other things that we have a hard time putting together. Well, Jesus came to convince cynics, but he also came to commission Christians. And so when, when he is um, uh, on that evening, the first day, um, the doors are locked. The disciples are in hiding. They're in fear that, that people are going to come for them. And, and they were in fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, Shalom, peace be with you. And when they, he, he had said this, he showed them his hands and sides. And, and the, the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Shalom peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. For when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I love that because I go back to Genesis chapter 1, and I see that God created everything, and he made it good. And then God created man in his own image out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed in him to the breath of life. And that is why we were created to worship God, because the breath of God is in us, and we were created to breathe in and breathe out our worship to him. And, and the This, he is breathing on men who were dead in their trespasses and sins. And he is saying, receive the new life of the Holy Spirit within you. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And he is saying, look, it's your job to go proclaim the good news, the gospel of forgiveness. And when you withhold it, people don't hear it. How will they know unless they hear? And how will they hear without a preacher, right? And so Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin. He wasn't there when Jesus came. And the other disciples said, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails, the place of his hand in the side, I will never believe. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap through history. We call him Doubting Thomas, right? Last week when we were in in John chapter 11 and and Jesus was going to go and raise Lazarus, Thomas is the one that goes, all right, we might as well go with him. Like We'll just go die with him right he and and you read that and you go all right but there's a healthy amount of skepticism why because in in human history how many people have been raised from the dead they they saw one guy lazarus but but here is would, could Jesus, does Jesus really have the power to bring himself back from the dead, like he said? And so he says, look, I'm sorry, guys. Um, I, I don't believe, and, and you're not going to get me to believe unless Jesus stands in front of me and I can actually touch his wounds. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas is with them. And all the do- though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, shalom, peace be with you. And then he said, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not keep disbelieving. That's, that's the, it's a, a present active. Do not keep disbelieving, but believe. And Thomas answers with, it's, it's the clearest description of someone ascribing worship and adoration to Jesus as God in all of scriptures. He responded, my Lord, Like it is the Greek translation where we would say Yahweh, the name of God. My Lord and my God. He is not swearing. He is making a declaration. I know exactly who you are. And he is falling down to worship. And Jesus said, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. When we look at Jesus' resurrection, we see that he, uh, he rose to convince cynics, and he rose to commission Christians. And you see, all through these stories, um, the same cycle over and over again. You see John, and he is misunderstanding, right? He stays outside the, the, the tomb, and he won't go in. But then, it, the, he moves from, from misunderstanding to mental ascent. And, and you see um, that, that when he is standing outside, it says that he looked in Inside and the the Greek word basically means just he observed. Peter, who ran in, the word that when it says that he saw, it's the word we get um, the word theory from. He theorized. He, he couldn't understand. He couldn't comprehend what was going on. And he, he was just kind of in wonder. I, I, don't, I don't know what happened. But then it says that, that John came in and that he saw and he believed. He comprehended. He understood. He remembered what Jesus had said. And he came to believe. Peter is, is misunderstanding, right? He, he views the t- tomb and he leaves unbelieving. And then mental assent comes when Jesus stands in his presence and, and Jesus puts him on mission and says, if you offer forgiveness, then forgiveness will be, for, will be given. And if you don't offer it, then people aren't going to receive it. With Mary, she's misunderstanding. They stole the body. And then she comes to mental assent. Rabboni. And then there's mission. Go to my brothers and tell them. Right? The disciples are misunderstanding. They're locked in a room in fear. And, and, and Jesus comes to them and says, peace be with you. And he says it twice. And, and they are overjoyed to see him. And you see mental ascent, right? And when he says peace, he's, hey, peace, be confident in, in your redemption. Come to me, you who are weary and, and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He says, peace, be confident in your mission. And, and take my yoke upon you for, um, uh, and learn of me. I am gentle and, and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. And so you see this call of peace. And the other gospels kind of fill in some of those pieces. And then he says, I'm putting you on mission. As I was sent, I'm sending you. And, and you are going to offer forgiveness like I offer forgiveness. And then you got Thomas. Thomas is misunderstanding. And he's saying, unless I touch the wounds, I'll never believe. And Jesus shows up and says, put your fingers here. And Thomas moves to mental assent. And he he. I love the fact that, that Thomas uh, forces Jesus to let him touch him. Because there was a... a, a Gnostic heresy called Docetism that, that rose up that said Jesus was just a spirit. There was nothing physical about him. Um, John kind of blows that whole thing up, right? Because here's Thomas. He's touching him. And the chapter later, they're going to eat fish together. Jesus is clearly not just some sort of ghost. And so Jesus puts him on mission. And he says, um, uh, when, 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 Thomas responds. He says, my Lord and my God. And it's not just a a proclamation of his devotion, but it's a proclamation of his commitment. And he's saying, I am your servant. I am at your disposal. I am here to do your will. If, If you look at each one of these things, one of the things that you notice that's missing is a commitment level that does not include mission. It's because commitment is mission. You can't be a committed Christian and not be a missional Christian, when you look just a couple of chapters later, you get into the book of Acts. The book of Acts describes um, uh, the, the first church, and they, they talk about um, uh, what it was that Jesus did. And it says, men of Israel, this is, this is um, Peter preaching. He says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. But God has raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, What shall we do? And Peter said, repent, return. Return to a covenant relationship with God, you Jewish people. Be baptized. Make a public declaration and and be on mission immediately by telling your story and saying, I believe you are evangelizing with your very testimony be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off and everyone the Lord our God calls to himself. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to the poor, all as any had need. When you read that, you read a group of people who they came to faith, and when they came to faith, they came to mission. And they understood that mission is the declaration of the gospel, but it is the living out of the gospel. One of the things that has been such a joy for me to be part of Mercy Chapel during a pandemic is to see people living the life of the gospel. I love the way that you guys give to help other people who are out of work. I love the fact that um, uh, the the Moors are willing to to loan a a, a lawnmower to Bobby, that Jason would go and mow his grass after his surgery. I love that you're taking care of each other. That is Part of mission. Mission is not just telling people the good news. Mission is living out the life of the good news. I think that that part of um, and and certainly not all, but part of the uh, the racial tension that is happening within the church. I'm not talking about community at large, but within the church, there's racial tension, and I think some of it has to do with the focus that we have and the way that we've separated the gospel. White evangelical churches tend to talk about the gospel in terms of its truth in terms of orthodoxy. And that's good. And they talk about the taking the gospel message on mission as, as like that evangelism piece as being the thing that makes mission, mission. That's true. The black evangelical church, the social gospel, social action. And so then they, they look and they, they say the most important thing isn't the truth. It's the compassion and the acts of love and the acts of service. And what we need to understand is that the gospel is not split into two parts. There are not two gospels, the truth of the gospel and the social gospel. There is one gospel. And that gospel is the good news that Jesus died and rose and the response of his people in love and compassion and acts of service. And by speaking the gospel, we get to tell people what they can expect to see in compassion by practicing compassion, we get to, to show people what the life of the God gospel looks like because the truth has transformed our hearts. The two things are inseparable. And when we separate them, we end up with division and dissension. And those things should not be. We need to understand that there is a gospel and that that gospel, when we accept it, puts us on mission and we get baptized to tell with people what it is that we have come to believe. And then we begin to live out and we begin to live in community and we begin to live sacrificially and we begin to share the life of the gospel that provides the platform for us to speak the gospel into people's hearts and minds. So Jesus rose to convince cynics, and Jesus rose to commission Christians. If if you're a a skeptic and you are unconvinced, um, it's okay. The, the guys who walked with Jesus, uh, they were skeptics, right? They didn't believe until Jesus showed up right in front of them. Even though they had lived with him, they had watched his life, they had heard his teaching, they had watched him do miracles. I mean, there's seven miracles before this one that John talks about, and they still had a hard time believing. If, if you are in that place, it's okay we would love to be involved in talking you through kind of your process of how you, how you look at these things. And, and I think it's important that you look at all the different ways that you can know. You look at the empirical investigation side and go, all right, what's the physical evidence? There are 500 people that, that saw Jesus. What's the rational deduct? Like, if this is true, if this wasn't mass hallucinations, then, then what do I do with this? To, to ask the, the question about the i witnesses and their willingness to die for for this. You to look at all of those things. But I think the most important thing is is to do what Psalms 34 says. Taste and see that the Lord is good. There is a a personal experience component that is part of Christianity. And it is a, a place that you have to come to after you've done all the other work. When you have looked at all the evidence and you've looked at the testimony and you've rationally thought it through, there's a, a point where you have to experience it. But I've told a lot of you about my friend, Nate, um, Nate had, had wanted to understand Christianity, and his wife had grown up Roman Catholic, and, and he wasn't sure what he believed, but he felt compelled to read the Bible, and he was reading through the entire Bible in a week. And he kept doing that week after week after week. And then he began to drill down and he began to read Romans every single day. And, and he was like, there's something in there. I'm not sure what it is. And he felt compelled by it. And I remember when Nate said, hey, um, I, I've looked at all the evidence. I've looked at, he's like, this has to be true. I think I believe it. And, and there was a step that he needed to take. And I, I said to him, Nate, it's great that you have come to believe that. Jesus died and rose again. You have believed that, but you are not trusting in. And so all I would say is ask God to give you his Holy Spirit and to give you saving faith to trust in. And Nate was a little disappointed because I think what he wanted was to just make a commitment and go, I'm a Christian now because I've come to believe this group of things. But if he had just come to believe that, and like we believe that George Washington was the first president, he would not have gotten to the point where he personally experienced. And it was months later when he called me up on the phone and he said, Tim, it's Nate. God has given me the spirit. The lights are on. I feel like he's breathed new life into me. And that is what the Holy Spirit is. It is the life of God breathed into the Christian to just like God breathes into Adam to make him a living soul. He breathes the Holy Spirit into us to make us alive to God in Christ. And so he, he experienced that. And God wants to breathe new life into you. And he wants you to receive his Holy Spirit. Romans chapter four says this, Jesus, our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses and raised to life for our justification. Therefore, We have peace with God because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has given us. If you have not crossed the line of faith, ask God to give you his Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian and you have crossed the line of faith but you are not living on mission, that is you are not sharing the truth of the gospel and you are not sharing the life of the gospel, then you need to have a moment like Thomas did where you see the risen Christ for who he is and you can't help but say, "My Lord and my God, I can confess that who you are and I submit to everything you want me to do." And so if you are a Christian and you're not living missionally, then you need to evaluate both your life and your actions, and your words, and just ask, how will I make these things a tool for the gospel of Jesus Christ? And begin looking for opportunities to live it out and to lay it out. Jesus rose to convince cynics, and Jesus rose to commission Christians. And Jesus did many wonderful things in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but this of all of them, was written so that you might believe in Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life through his name. Father, we thank you that there is life in the name of Jesus. We thank you that your Holy Spirit has been breathed into us so that we might experience the God life that you have for us. We thank you that you love the world so much that you gave your only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And that you did not send your son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the new life that we have because your spirit is within us. Lord, I pray that we will be people who live out the gospel and lay out the gospel, every opportunity we have. Lord, make us a people on mission. Make us a gospel people on gospel mission and gospel community for your glory and your honor and your praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.